We continue on in the preaching series in the book of Judges. The title of this morning's sermon is The Escapades of Ehud, Judges 3, 12 through 31. And I had to laugh at the end of the 10 a.m. service as Pastor Mike was addressing us. And he was talking about shenanigans. And I was thinking, well, how appropriate. I'm going to be talking about escapades at 11 o'clock. So once again, we are on the same sort of uh, uh, sheet of music, so to speak. Um, Which is appropriate, especially since Pastor Mike is very much musically adept. So open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 3, verse 12 is where we're going to be starting. Now, I've read in commentaries that the book of Judges is one of the least preached books in the Bible. And people that have difficulty with the book of Judges would say that the account of Ehud exemplifies what's wrong, if you will, with the, with the book of Judges. That it's really not suitable for Christian ears in a Christian church because it's, it's bloody and, well, it's, it's gross. I mean, there are, there, it is. We can admit that. And at the very least, if you're going to preach it, you must clean it up a lot to make it presentable. Well, I think this attitude is kind of wrong-headed. The idea that we have to improve upon God's word before we can present it to someone is, is certainly something that we should see as being a, a, a great error. Especially if we believe, as we should, that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible word of God. So we must ask the question, if we're struggling with these sorts of accounts in the Bible, do we really believe that? Do we really believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible? I mean, really and truly believe that. Not just saying it because it's what we're supposed to say, but it's what we've heard other people say. It's what we've heard our, our pastors say, so we repeat it. Or are there things in there that we are embarrassed by? And I think that's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate concern that we need to examine. And if we are embarrassed by certain things, we have difficulties with certain things, then I challenge you that it's our understanding of those things that are the stumbling block. It's not what God has revealed to us. And as we go through this difficult passage, I hope to help you overcome any sort of stumbling block that you may have in regards to this. Because if we don't believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, if we don't believe that it is God's revelation to us that gives us an eternal perspective, then all it is really is a a book of wisdom to be categorized with the other books of wisdom through human history. A book that we can pick up as we feel needed to or desire to and set it aside when we no longer want to use it. We pick up or discard it depending on our feelings or perceived needs for the moment. That's not what God intended for his word. His word is to be with us at all times. 
And I think what the problem is in many churches today is that the accounts in the Bible, especially the difficult ones, are infantilized. They're like, like, um, like David and Goliath or the great deluge. They're, they're reduced to a flannel board story. And, you know, we have a, a flannel figure of a great big man and a flannel figure of a little boy. And, you're, and the children's Sunday school teacher tells the tale of David and Goliath. And then the big giant figure of flannel is laid on its side as he is overcome. Well, I'm not to say that we don't teach in an age-appropriate manner. We certainly do. But we have to be careful that when we mature... In, in age and in our faith that we delve with God's word in the, in the difficult areas and, and that we understand them. I recall many years ago, I was teaching through Genesis and I had a lady who came to me and said, I, I really don't need to hear this. This is basic, basic stuff. I said, well, um, just bear with me. This is what I'm going to be teaching. She goes, well, I've taught this many times in children's Sunday school. I said, okay, well, I appreciate you being here, um, but this is how I'm going to present it. So as we went through the class, after one session, she came up to me, and she seemed to gasp. She said, did God really kill all living things except those that were in the ark, in the flood? And I'm thinking, this lady has presented herself as a master teacher of Scripture, and she knows Genesis. She knows the story of Noah's flood. And I think what the problem was is that she had taught it so many years, so many times to children, that she was thinking of it as a cute little toy boat with those, with those really cute cartoon animals sticking out of the windows. And it, was, and it was a story. She didn't realize it was about judgment, God's judgment upon the world. And we don't realize that David and Goliath is about God's deliverance of his people. These aren't just little stories that are entertaining for children. And we make a mistake when we reduce them um, as such. And remember that the word of God is intentional. As we go through this account today, the details that God has given, each one of them is purposeful. And they're there for a reason. And when we come to parts that we don't particularly like because they're bloody or they're gross... There's intentionality in that. And we should look for the reason. You know, God doesn't tell us things to shock us. He doesn't tell us things just to entertain us. He tells things to reveal his messages to us. One commentator that I know of, he goes so far as to apologize for the book of Judges, for the narrative that's in it due to the consternation and questioning that it invariably causes. Well, frankly, I think consternation and questioning can be good, particularly consternation over evil and sin, particularly consternation, excuse me, particularly questioning over human motivations. On a personal note, as I read through the account of Ehud, it struck me that I felt like I was reading the script to an action-adventure movie. It was like I imagined like a James Bond movie. Back in the day, you know, when James Bond was really popular, I heard recently that 
they're now going to have James Bond be, be more sensitive and, and, and uh, politically correct, so you know, maybe this story wouldn't fit in with the new James Bond. But anyway, think of this. It has all the elements of a James Bond thriller. There's a dire situation that disrupts everyday life. And there's a supervillain in it, a character with a unique physical appearance that makes him stand out from everybody else. And there's those really cool trick weapons, like James Bond had, made especially for the hero. And then a masquerade, an infiltration under a guise of a different identity into the villain's lair by the hero. And the villain is tricked by appealing to his evil desires. And then the hero makes a very daring and very unusual escape. All of that's in this account. And aside from that, as a piece of writing, it is just absolutely masterful. There's a remarkable use of humor, irony, and satire as well as symbolism. There's, there's foreshadowing in there. God tells us about things to come in his plan of uh, his economy for the human race. As we saw at the end of the account last week of the first judge, Otniel, Otniel, the lion of God, who vanquished Kushan, the double wicked, the land had rest for 40 years. Everything was fine for an entire generation. Then Otniel died as all humans die. And what do you think happened next? Well, let's see. Read along with me, Judges 3, verses 12 through 14. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, there it is. They're back to their shenanigans. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. There it is in verse 12. Like I said, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's so bad now that the narrator mentions this twice. So even after God had provided peace and security to the Israelites for an entire generation of 40 years, the Israelites are now, they are now the double wicked, like their former oppressor, Kushan. How quickly the blessings of God are forgotten. How easily People follow the examples of wickedness in a ruler. In judgment for Israel's wickedness, which as we've talked about before, as we've seen, this means apostasy, it means disobedience, rebellion against God. We're told that Yahweh strengthened Hazak in Hebrew, which means he seized or grasped tightly in order to grow or make strong. Eglon, the king of Moab, to use him against Israel. Now, the Boabites, if you recall, were descended from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter after they escaped from Sodom. Moab, the, the nation, the people, was located east of Canaan, Canaan the, the, the promised land. 
What's interesting, Eglon's name translated means the fat calf, which is based on his physical description. One wonders if it's a humorous and disparaging nickname for a hated tyrant. But here we have satire at play in the story. Because the Lord had strengthened Eglon, he was able to gather allies to assist him in attacking Israel. He allied with the Ammonites. The Ammonites, like the Moabites, were descended from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his youngest daughter after the escape from Sodom. See how this sin, this abomination that occurred in Genesis is coming back to affect the people of God. And then there's the Amalekites. They're a nomadic people. They're traditional enemies of Israel. They were the first to oppose the tribes of Israel in their wilderness journey. So this triple alliance defeated Israel. And Eglon took possession of the city of Palms. Now this is likely a reference to Jericho. And I don't believe that Israel occupied Jericho. It was unoccupied. At the very least, it was unfortified. Because it, in, uh, in, in the book of Joshua, we're told there's a curse upon those who will um, build the walls up again in Jericho. And it's such a horrendous curse that it's doubtful in my mind that the Israelites would do such a thing. They might have, but, but I don't think so. So Jericho was easily occupied um, by Eglon, and this gave him strategic control over the Jordan Valley. Because as you cross the Jordan River into Canaan, you start to, to uh, travel upwards out of, out of the, the river valley towards the Judean hills. And Jericho is the first city you come to. It can, it's commanding. It controls all of this land. You can sit there and watch everything. And this gave Eglon strategic control over an important trade east-west trade route between, um, between the land of the Ammonites and Egypt and everything uh, west of the Jordan. So here he is, Eglon, successful not only in conquering the Israelites, but he's also successful in maintaining control over them. We're told in verse 14, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. For 18 long years, the Israelites toiled for Eglon. Their second period of subjection under a foreign oppressor in the promised land had been increased now by a decade. Eight years under Kushan, now 18 years under Eglon. So Yahweh is applying the principle of progressive discipline to his wayward people. Oh, you didn't get it the first time? Well, the second time, the punishment is going to be greater. We often use this with our own children, don't we? And in the workplace, it could be used by overseers, by, superior, by, um, by supervisors and managers over employees. So moving on, let's look at verse 15 here. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, Benjaminite, a left-handed man, 
The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So notice, again, just like in the, the account of the very first judge, Israel cries out to the Lord, cried out Za'ak. Recall, as, as I talked about before, this does not signify repentance. There's, there, the, the word, the term in and of itself does not mean a cry of repentance. It must be modified to mean that. We don't see any such modification here. So this is only a cry of pain or cry for help. But again, Israel, who do they turn to? They turn to the one true God, Yahweh. They have bowed down and served the Baals and Asheroth, but they don't cry out to the Baals and Asheroth. They cry out to the one true God. And the Lord God responds again in the manner he did previously with Atniel. He raised up, established, set up, a deliverer, a deliverer, Mosiah, which can mean rescuer or savior. Being as this is so similar to what the Lord did with Atniel, then why is it that we consider Atniel the model judge? What's different with Ehud? Why is he not such a standard of excellence as Atniel was? Well, if you notice, there was something missing in this account, in this description of, of uh, Ehud that we hear back in verse 10 with Atniel, and we're told the spirit of the Lord was upon Atniel. And the narrator makes no such claim of the spirit of God being upon Ehud. And we're not told why God did not bestow his spirit upon this deliverer that he raised up. But I'll tell you this, it is not because of what Ehud did or did not do. Do. The bestowing of the Spirit is solely God's prerogative. It's what God decides to do, and we're not told why. Perhaps it is, it is beyond the limitations of our understanding, and it's certainly beyond the ability of anyone to strive for. It's like election and justification, it is solely by God's grace. It's determined by his eternal wisdom. But it is a marked difference that sets Atniel apart. So we read in the second half of verse 15 that Ehud, the son of Gera, Gera the Benjaminite, a left-handed man, referring to Ehud. Now this is interesting. This is kind of ironical because Benjamin means, quote, son of the right hand. End quote, in Hebrew. The narrative ironically notes Ehud was left-handed, but he comes from the right-handed people. And the Hebrew term to describe a left-handed man literally means one who is bound or impotent in the right hand. But as we're going to see, Ehud's left-handedness does not render him impotent. On the contrary, it's crucial for him in his delivering Israel from Eglon, the fat calf of Moab. And this trait that Eglon had, this left-handedness, sets him apart from other men. It makes him stand out. And perhaps it caused him difficulty. As those of you that are left-handed can attest, it's not easy being left-handed in a right-handed world. And it was the same 
at this point in time, especially if you were a fighting man. Tactics and weapons were designed for right-handed men. Think about this. Our English word sinister is borrowed from the Latin, which means from the left side. And we're not sure in the origin of the word. Did, was, were left-handed, was left-handedness called sinister because it was connected with evil or because it was called sinister, then sinister meant evil. But there's that connotation there, right? So that's just an example of, of how different this guy, this guy was because he was left-handed. And Ehud's use of deception in killing Eglon excuse me, those of you who are left-handed, really is compatible metaphorically with him being left-handed, using the left-handed side, the sinisterness of it. And this brings us to our first point. Point number one is that the smallest details of our lives are decreed by God and used by God to bring about his ends. This is clearly established in the, in the narrative of, of, of the Lord raising up Ehud, whose left-handedness is a key to success in his mission. We might not understand or even like how God has made us, whether we're short or tall, lean or stout, right-handed or left-handed, straight hair or curly hair, but consider this, the psalmist David in Psalm 139, and I'm just going to read verses 13 through 16. He talks about how God has made each of us, I think, uniquely. David writes, for you formed my inward parts, speaking to the Lord. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, this is a Hebrew idiom, most likely means in my mother's womb, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. It's all planned ahead of time. Exactly. David knew exactly how he was to be was God's doing. And a result of this insight, David declares in the next verse, verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Think about that. The intimacy that God has with us should motivate us to be intimate with God and seek out his thoughts, which he shares with us through his, his revealed word, the Bible. God desires this intimacy, and we should too. In the second half of Judges 3, verse 15, we read, The people of Israel sent tribute by him, that's Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab, so Ehud is recognized by the Israelites as a man that could be entrusted with an important mission. And this tribute would consist of a significant portion of the Israelite economy. It would be a crushing amount that they would have to give this king. It was a form of taxation imposed by a conqueror over a conquered people. 
with a dual purpose. One, to enrich the tyrant, of course, and number two, to impoverish the conquered people, to make them economically dependent, or rather, unable to be economically independent in order to finance their own liberation movement. This tribute was too big for one man to transport, so Ehud was the leader of a contingent of men who were detailed to carry out this mission. And we read in verses 16 and 17, here we get into the James Bondy sort of stuff. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. So this was an unusual sword that was made by Ehud. It was actually really like a long dagger. It was about 18 inches long with a straight double-edged blade. It was designed for thrusting or stabbing. And it was very different from most swords of this era, which were single-edged blades that were curved. And they were designed for slashing or chopping. This, This dagger or sword that Ehud made was probably made out of bronze, and it was concealable. That means most likely it had no um, cross piece or hilt between the handle and the blade. The fact of which is supported by the details of the attack. So it's like a very large modern day commando knife designed for a quick and silent attack. This was a stabbing instrument intended for one time use to be thrust into Eglon's body and left there. Basically, it was an ancient fire-and-forget weapon. And being a left-handed man, Ehud concealed this blade where Eglon's royal bodyguards would not suspect a weapon to be, on his right thigh, under his clothes. So the king's bodyguards would be put at ease because Ehud did not have a sword on his left side like most right-handed men would have. No visible weapon. So Ehud would be not considered that great a threat. The the alert level of the bodyguards is toned down. And we read in verses 17 and 19, and he, Ehud, presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. So Ehud successfully carries out his cover mission, the first half of his mission. And he and his contingent depart from the city of Palms. Then they reach the boundary between Israelite territory allotted to the tribes of Ephraim and Benjamin, and Eglon's holdings at the ancient city of Jericho. These boundary markers are called, in the text, Pasilam. And this is a pejorative term. It's a negative term because they're graven stones. They're connected with pagan worship. Think about this. We've talked about the apostasy in Israel. Apostasy had settled so deeply into Israelite life that it permeated every aspect of their society, including boundary markers for territory. And very possibly, we don't know for sure, but very possibly, based on the fact that these are graven 
stones for idol worship, there was a cultic worship center there. So, this kind of explains why King Eglon granted Ehud a private audience when Ehud returned. Ehud had a secret message. He had been at this worship center. He's returning with an oracle from the gods for this king. Now, Ehud had presented himself already as a harmless emissary. And probably, I think it's safe to say, he ingratiated himself with the king in his first visit and acted in a very servile manner. So now Ehud, excuse me, Eglon, is thinking, oh, a message for me from the gods. It's good, undoubtedly going to be good. I've got to hear this. This brings us to our second point. God raises up men and endows them with courage and backbone to lead his people against those who would oppress them and lead them away from worship and obedience to the one true God. As we've seen, Ehud was blessed with nerves of steel and abundant courage. His qualities were exactly what was needed at that exact time. But men of courage are needed by God's people at all times throughout history. They may not need physical courage to face mortal danger. They may need moral courage to face spiritual danger, false teaching, heresy, apostasy. We need men of courage today. God's people face, for our times, unprecedented and unrelenting criticism and pressure to conform to every abomination that dark and evil hearts desire. This disobedience to God's word, this apostasy that ancient Israel was trapped and ensnared in in the days of the judges. And the Bible clearly teaches us that God knows exactly when what type of men need to be raised up to carry out the missions he has decreed. God has it well in hand. Judges, chapter 3, verses 20 through 23, we read, And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Okay, so we need to picture what a royal palace in the ancient Near East at this time looked like. Basically, there were predominantly two-story affairs. And the bottom floor, the, the main floor, was the audience hall. That was like where the, the public things of government took place, where the ruler would receive emissaries and so forth. The second floor was the private chamber. It would contain a private throne room and uh, a place for the king to relax and to have confidential meetings. It was, it, there was, the access was very much restricted there. You had to know somebody and have the king's approval to get there. 
And when Ehud tells Eglon, quote, I have a message from God for you, it's interesting. Ehud uses the generic term for deity, Elohim, not the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So he could be referring to pagan gods. They were called Elohim also. And the message was from the one true God to Eglon, the fat calf. And that message was, time's up. Eglon shall no longer oppress the people of God. And a bit of irony again here. Eglon becomes like a fattened calf slaughtered before the Lord. Now Ehud makes his daring escape. And it's not really obvious in the text because there's, some, there's trans, a little bit of translation difficulty. And there's also, you know, we have to know about the architectural details of these palaces to really understand what's going on. I'm reading to you from the ESV, and it talks about a porch. Well, I kind of get the idea just from the English uh, translation of it that um, Eglon, or excuse me, Ehud kills uh, um, Eglon and goes out on like a balcony and locks the door and like goes down on a rope. What's the point in locking a door, though, if, you go, if you're going that way? It doesn't really make sense. Well, <clears throat> I think the best explanation is that this word that is translated in the ESV as porch refers to what is actually in the inner chamber, the, the restroom, if you will, of the king, a, a shaft, a toilet shaft that goes from the king's personal private toilet down into a basement into a laboratory pit, if you will, a cesspool. This is how Ehud escapes. He goes down the toilet shaft. I know, it's, but, you know, it adds to the drama. Here's this miraculous, I mean, he, and he comes out maybe a janitor's access closet, right? And he walks out the first floor like nothing happened. Now, with that in mind, I mean, I'm picturing Sean Connery walking out of the villain's mansion shooting the cuffs on his tuxedo as the mansion blows up behind him, just as calm as a cucumber. And this is what we're seeing that this judge is doing. Let's read on, verses 24 and 26. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. He waited a long time. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So the locked doors, coupled with the smell coming from inside, makes the royal attendants think the king is indisposed. He's in his restroom, when actually the fat calf is dead on the floor. And this provides... Ehud, with time to escape to Israelite territory. And there's a point in this gory and gross detail of Eglon's killing. God has it there for a reason. And this is the point that I see it. It's our third point in the sermon. The enemies of God, human and otherwise, may seem so powerful that we might almost think that their power is insurmountable. 
But God can and does reduce them to ridiculousness in an instant. Eglon's tyranny over Israel lasted 18 long years, yet it ended quickly and decisively in a humiliating fashion. Exactly when, where, and by what means the Lord decreed. God used this tyrant for the purposes of disciplining his people, showing judgment upon his people, and he used him as long as he needed him. We have to remember, physical death does not end it either. There's not just the momentary pain, then nothingness. There's judgment. As our Lord Jesus Christ called it, Gehenna, the lake of fire or hell, awaiting. Made me think when I was preparing this sermon, this idea about, you know, this life being all there is, made me think of drug traffickers. The major cartel bosses down in Mexico. These men do not fear death. They embrace death. In fact, they worship death. They know that their lives are going to be cut short. Everyone that's involved in drug trafficking knows that. But yet, it doesn't seem to bother them because they want to get what they can now. And they don't think about what comes later. In reading of one major Mexican drug cartel leader, the author of this piece said, the only thing this man feared were the U.S. federal supermax prisons. Now, these supermax prisons are, are daunting places. Karen and I have seen one where I, I was interviewed for a chief's job out of state, and we had gone there, we had flown there, and this place was was very, the whole place was very stark and unappealing, and there were numerous prisons, and one of which was a federal supermax prison, and there's nothing at all attractive about them. Those who are housed in supermax prisons live a life of complete solitude. They do not see another human being. They're in a stark, concrete environment, and they're let out of their cells for one hour every day. That is what these drug, these evil drug lords fear is the supermax. Well, the supermax is a pretty comfortable place considering what comes after this life is over. And that attitude is shared by many people today. They fear what other men can do to them. They fear the temporary fate that this present world holds for them. They fear that they may not be able to live another year, another month, or another day. But they do not fear what they should fear. And if you are not in Christ, and you hear my words, if you do not believe in your heart that God the Father raised Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, from the dead and you do not confess with your mouth that he is your Lord and Savior, then hear these words, because this applies to you, my friend. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, says, I tell you, my friends, 
Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You're not promised. I'm not promised. We have no guarantee that we will have another tomorrow. Eglon, the king of Moab, believed, I'm sure, that he would live another day. After all, he had formed a mighty alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He conquered the Israelites. The Israelites, those who were well-known, they had destroyed the greatest city in the land, Jericho. And Eglon now occupied that city. Whom did he have to fear? And he had ruled over the Israelites for 18 long years. Yet shortly after he received tribute as their overlord, and he was told about the the secret message from God that he was to receive, undoubtedly he thought that message would benefit him. The days which God Almighty had decreed for him had come to an end. There's an hourglass of running sand for each and every one of us that God has turned and the grains are running even as we speak. And there's nothing I can do, there's nothing you can do to add a single grain of sand to that hourglass. No matter what we do, no matter what pills we take, no matter what injections we receive, no matter how safe We think we make ourselves. We can lock ourselves in our homes to avoid all dangers. And we will not add a single grain of sand to the hourglass of our life. Death will come to all of us. And it will come at the exact moment God has decreed for you. He decreed it before he laid the foundations of this world. So trust in the one who holds your life in his hands. Trust in the Lord. When I was a police officer, I was promoted to sergeant at one point in my career. I was a brand new sergeant. I'd been a motorcycle officer for many years. And now I was a a sergeant. And as a new sergeant, I was reassigned to patrol. I was working the night watch. And I'd been working day watch traffic as a motorcycle officer, like I said, for years. So the town, the city had changed uh, in complexity a little bit. There was one area of town uh, that had been fairly nice, but it was one of those places that goes up and down, you know, with crime problems. And it had gotten really bad. And so um, I'd asked and I was told, you know, what, what was going on there? What was the problem in this area of the city? Well, there were some men that were affiliated with a a certain gang that was in that area, and they had recently been released from prison, and they were back in that neighborhood, and they were attempting to take over the neighborhood. They were going to run the neighborhood, and they had told the beat officers in that area, this is our territory. We run it. You stay out. Well, one night, I get a radio call to go assist some officers that are asking for a supervisor. They need a sergeant. 
So I head up there, and I get there, and there's a couple patrol cars there, and the officers are standing on the street, and across from them, on the other side of an intersection, is this large crowd of men, younger men. <clears throat> and I knew going up there that the officers were on, had been dispatched to a radio call. There was a vacant, abandoned house. And someone in the, in the neighborhood had called and said, there's, there's gunshots coming from inside this vacant house. Maybe someone's been shot. So two officers go up there, and I asked them, well, what's going on? They said, those guys won't let us go into that house. They were in front of the, 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 this gang was in front of this house. And I said, okay, well, we're going to go in the house. We're not going to leave. So I got on the radio, and I told the dispatcher, send me every available radio car that you have. I want all the officers available here now. And so... All the young guys working, they hear this, they go, woohoo, something exciting is going to happen. Here I go. And so I get a large contingent of officers. I said, okay, guys, we're going to go um, in that house. Uh, we're going to deal with these, these men first. I don't know what we're going to have to do. Let's just see. Follow my lead. So I walk over there. My men are following me. And I go up to the ringleader, who is known to me. And I tell him, listen. <laughs> We need to go in that house. We're going to go in that house. He says, no, you're not going in that house. Get out of here. We don't want you here. This is our neighborhood, not yours. I said, okay, step aside now or you're going to go to jail. And he had some words for me at that point. And I told him, you're under arrest. I put my hand on him. I knew the fight, would be, the fight was on. And so all of us, all of us police officers are fighting with all these gang members. Officers are getting on the radio. You know, officers need help. We're in a major fight, yada, yada, yada. So I'm trying to arrest the ringleader, and this fight's going on, and, and I'm down on the ground with him. I'm looking up, and I see officers chasing bad guys and fighting with bad guys, and it was just, it was chaos. And I finally get this guy handcuffed, and I look behind me, and one of my officers is on the ground rolling around with another guy. So I go over and help him, get him handcuffed, and he tells me, Sergeant, he says, that guy almost killed you. What happened? Well, there was this, they'd broken down this fence, wrought iron fence with like spear points on the top. You've seen those. And he had a section of it. And as I was kneeling over this guy, he stood over me with a section of fence with the spear points down and was ready to, to let me have it in the back of my neck. And Doug tackled him and arrested him, took him into custody. I came very close to being killed that night and I had no idea, no idea whatsoever. I'd had close calls before where I thought I might be killed, a couple where I thought for sure I was going to be killed, and here's one where if, the, if God had decreed, I would have been killed and not even known it. I would have been alive one moment and dead the next. And that's an example of how tenuous, from a human perspective, our lives are. I've stood over many, many victims of homicide, law-abiding citizens and lawbreakers, both, who had no idea that that day when I stood over them would be their last. People do not expect a violent death, whether it's in a car crash or a criminal attack. But I tell you, it can come at any time. And I tell this story to emphasize how much we need, if we do not have him as our Lord and Savior, how much we need Jesus Christ. In the account 
is wrapping up of Ehud. Verses 27 through 29. When he, Ehud, arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Ehud receives not only a successful espionage agent, but he proved himself as a military leader. His ability to call out the warriors of the tribes of Israel are what marked him as a judge or deliverer. This proved his anointing by Yahweh for this role. And Ehud delivers this message to the Israelites, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Notice that Ehud does not say, follow after me because I brought down the king of the Moabites. No. Ehud says, this is the work of the Lord. The Lord wants us to act now. This is the moment Yahweh has decreed for our victory. It's all credit to the one true God. No no credit for himself. All is attributed to the Lord. And verse 29 tells us they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. As I said, not a man escaped. The ESV, notice, has this word, they're strong men. Um, Other translations use stout or vigorous or lusty. In Hebrew, it's samen, which literally means fat. These are fat guys. Fat guys can be strong, no doubt, but they're fat. So King Fat Calf had an army of fat soldiers. They had grown comfortable in occupation, in 18 years of occupation duty not expecting this conquered and cowed people to rise up against them. Just think the Lord used those 18 years to fatten them up like animals for a sacrifice. And they were wiped out to a man. In wrapping up, verses 30-31, so Moab was surrounded that day, excuse me, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him, Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. God, through the Mosiah, the Savior he had raised up, granted Israel rest, stability, safety, security for 80 years, the time span of two biblical generations, twice the time that they were granted after being delivered by Otniel. The Lord gives Israel a double blessing this time. And following Ehud, there's a minor judge, Shamgar. And the the minor judges, if you recall from the introduction, they're just these men that we're not given much information about. But... um, His delivery of Israel, some commentators think it could overlap with the life of of Ehud because we're not told about Ehud dying at this point like we we are with most of the judges. And we see here the introduction of Israel's perpetual enemy, the Philistines. 
But this brief account of Shamgar is marked by the same use of satire as Ehud's. Again, the enemy is not only defeated, but he's made to look utterly ridiculous by an unlikely hero who single-handedly delivers Israel in a heroic manner. Then again, our attention is drawn to a special weapon, not one specially made, but one that's improvised. It's an ox goad. It's, 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 uh, it's basically a stick about eight, six to eight feet long with a metal tip on it. And its nature of this weapon reveals very clearly that this man, Shamgar, is a makeshift warrior. He doesn't have the tools of a warrior. He has the tool, tools of a man who drives cattle. But just as his weapon is much less subtle than Ehud, so is his method. He overcomes an enemy force of 600 by a feat of superhuman strength and dexterity. He goads them to death like so many oxen that have displeased him. We had the fatted calf and his soldiers. Now we have the Philistines being treated like oxen. I think we should see the irony and the satire in this. It leads us to our last point as we wrap up. Our God is not a standoffish prude who recoils from the messiness of our lives. And we must admit that our lives are messy, aren't they? We make a mess of things. And people we know make a mess of our lives. And we make messes of their lives. And we're messing back and forth. And we do not have to sanitize the mess we have made in order that our lives be presentable to God. We don't have to do it. We don't have to do this before he will lower himself to help us. Our eternal Savior came to rescue us by being born in a place that sheltered livestock. I'd venture to say that none of us have experienced ourselves such a low birth. And if you've experienced birth, you know it's a messy, bloody business, whether you've witnessed it, whether you've gone through it. And Jesus identifies with us and delights in delivering us from our messes. He wants us to laugh. God wants us to laugh. He brings us joy. He's showing us in this account that he makes our enemies his objects of scorn and ridicule. Now, I'm not talking about enemies like people we disagree with. No. We're to approach them like, like they are potential brothers and sisters that God may rescue from their messiness. And I'm talking about the evil opponents that fight against the true God in his gospel. In our eternal Savior, he turns the fallen world upside down and he comforts us as we weep for a night. But then he brings us joy in the morning. There's always joy, no matter how dark. The joy may be in the next life. We may face extreme difficulty at the end of our life. But joy awaits. Join me in a closing prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is so awesome. We give thanks for it. We give thanks 
for the deliverance, for the rescue, the salvation that we have through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for these wonderful brothers and sisters here. Lord, bless them. Bless them through this day and the rest of the week, Father. Guide us through the difficult days that we may have ahead. Father, reveal to us the joy that there is in this life that you have for us and the joy that is to come. Father, I just ask the Holy Spirit be upon us that we may discern the false teachings, the apostasy that is around us today, that we may remain true and faithful and obedient servants of you. Father, bless the rest of this day that we may focus on you, that we may glorify you today and the rest of the week until we can meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.